Family, let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you so much for your word and for how you can encourage us and challenge us. Uh, I think about what was said about my pastor, that he challenged the comfortable and comforted the challenged. And I pray, Father God, that that could be true of our word, that of your word, Lord, that this morning, that if there's any way that I can comfort those, Lord God, who are challenged in these moments, I pray that your word would do that. But Lord, I pray that if we're comfortable right now, that you would challenge us. And Father, I pray that you would help us to seek your will, that in those instances where we want to turn our backs, we would instead bend our knees. And I pray, Father God, that you'll help us to see the way in which you came into this world, your divine conspiracy, (laughs) to come in the flesh to show us yourself, to show us your way. And I pray, Father God, that my friends, my brothers and sisters would learn to be able to walk in that way. In Jesus' name, amen. See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now, it might be an odd scripture for a Christmas series. In fact, the opening line said something about palms, and you're thinking, Johnny, you got your dates a little mixed up. This isn't Palm Sunday. Um, But Advent is the perfect example of a truth found in these lines from John, that the kingdom of Jesus will continue to advance no matter what forces come against it. Uh, We've named this series, Oh, This is Big, for reasons that we've outlined so far, that the timeline of the nativity is longer than our nativity sets. That the reach of Jesus' birth extends wider than Bethlehem. That the scope of God's desire is seen across the centuries. And his appearance was foreseen by prophets. You know, we talked last week about Jesus appearing, but that wasn't the first time he appeared. That he seemed to appear in the pages as, as God was giving Moses 12, 1300 years prior to that signs of his appearance, that as he, he was giving Isaiah signs of his appearance. But his appearance was foreseen by prophets. It was witnessed by thousands. He appeared to young and old, to rich and poor, to people who knew they were sinners, and to others who thought they were saints. And one thing is for certain, God had a plan, and nothing can stand in the way of God's plan. And the one truth that we have to grapple with is this, and it can be nations, it can be leaders, or it can be individuals that have to grapple with this, and it's this fact, that you can either fight against Jesus, or you can bow before him. You can either turn your back to him, or bend your knee to him. You can either fight against what God wants to do in your life, or you can submit to him and realize the kind of life that God can have for you. See, when we celebrate Jesus' birth and his childhood, there are details that emerge about kingdoms and authorities fighting against him or bowing before him. And when the shepherds came, they came to discover more as well as to worship him. And later when magi from the east come and the religious authorities that see them and hear them come into the city, that instead of being excited about the prophecies that they knew were to be fulfilled, they were troubled in all Jerusalem with them. And not only that, but you have inherited the great, an attempt to kill 
Jesus by wiping out baby boys who were two years old and younger. And this whole idea of either fighting against God or bowing before him is seen all throughout recorded history. Because we see this from the very beginning. This is something that we took a look at even last week. That instead of starting right off into the nativity scene in Jesus' birth, we went to the very beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But in Genesis chapter 3, we see this scene unfolding of this creature personified as a serpent or a snake coming against and fighting against God. This creature that had seen God, he had been with him face to face, could actually turn his back on God and take a third of heaven with him. But Genesis 3, verses 14 through 15, details the whole idea that the serpent, God was saying to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring or seed and hers. This person that will come in the future will crush your head, but you will strike his heel. There is this battle for whether or not God is going to be the leader of our lives. It's something that was played out in Israel's history. I mean, you can't read Exodus, the Judges, the Kings, the Chronicles, the Prophets to realize that people and nations struggled with this whole idea of either submitting their lives to this king or turning their backs on him. In fact, one of the uh, early times of Isaiah confessing what his nation was doing, he says, woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers. And you think, you know, if you know Jesus' words at all, that's exactly the kind of language that he was using against the religious authorities of his day. You brood, you nest of snakes, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Instead of bowing the knee, they turned their backs on him. And Isaiah is speaking about his own people. This was a truth that was played out in Babylon that once the warnings came in, through these prophets about what was going to happen to the nation, to God's people, that, that if you do not turn and return to me, that's the whole idea of repentance, of doing a 180. If you don't do this, this is what is going to take place. There are consequences for your actions. And so the nation of Babylon ended up taking them over. But what's fascinating is that you have these authorities who think they are something. I mean, we, we were there at the tail end of Philippians realizing that and, you know, one of the greatest authorities on earth at the time, that he was thinking that he was fighting for his own dominance over all the world. But then as years and as decades rolled on, there were people in Caesar's own household who would be able to call themselves Jesus followers. And they wouldn't say Caesar is Lord, they would say Jesus is Lord. And so here we have a king and a nation taking over God's people, thinking that he himself is like God on earth and the main authority on earth. And yet God breaks in to his life. In Daniel chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, it says, In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. 
His mind was troubled and he couldn't sleep. So the king summoned magicians or magi, same word, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. And when they came, they came in and stood before the king, and maybe you remember the story that they come in and they say, okay, king, tell us what, you, what, what were your dreams, and then we'll interpret them for you. And Nebuchadnezzar wanted to have nothing to do with that. He said, no, if you are actually a spiritual authority in my life, if there is something real to what you have been telling me, then you will be able to tell me what I dreamt as well as the interpretation of those dreams. And they're thinking, my king, there is no way we can do this. The only person who can do this is, you know, gods, and they do not live among humankind. And so Nebuchadnezzar was like, all right, fine, take them all out. So a decree from Nebuchadnezzar was that he was going to kill all of those wise men, those magi. Well, word gets to Daniel, and Daniel's like, what in the world, what is going on with King Nebuchadnezzar? Well, you see, he had a dream, and, and his magi, they could not interpret his dreams. They couldn't tell him what he dreamt, but they couldn't, also they couldn't interpret those dreams. So Daniel was like, can you buy us some time? <laughs> Goes back home, prays with his friends, and God reveals to Daniel not only the interpretation, but also what Nebuchadnezzar had dreamt. And so within Daniel's interpretation of his dream, he tells him in chapter 2, verse 44, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Sound familiar? Nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. Later, King Nebuchadnezzar, after being humbled, falls prostrate before Daniel and pays him honor and orders that an offering. Interesting that he bows down before Daniel. He bows down. Instead of turning his back, he bows a knee. But he pays him honor and, and, and offered that an offering and incense be pre- presented to Daniel. He's kind of thinking, oh my word, this is like God in the flesh. No, 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 I'm just a man. But he says to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries. For you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished him with many gifts. And he made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all of its wise men. I emphasize this because it's no mystery to me that when we get to, you know, Jesus being about two years old, when these magi come into the scene, where they're coming from, because I believe they were descendants of those magi whose leader was a Hebrew interpreter of dreams. Daniel would have taught the magi what to expect and when to expect it. And then generations down the line, you have these magi coming from the east in order to worship this newborn king. Later, Daniel himself would have a vision in chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. He says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power, and all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will never pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Individuals, kings, 
Kingdoms itself have to deal and have to grapple with this truth. You either bow the knee to this king of kings or you turn your back on him. You either fight against him or you surrender to him. And it was a scene played out at his birth. Now, where we're going this morning is not to focus on the nativity scenes that we find, the advent that we find in the Gospel of Matthew or the Gospel of Luke. We're going to go to the Gospel writer John, but it's not found in his Gospel. See, we tend to focus on the nativity scenes found in Matthew and Luke's perspective, but what about John's perspective? Well, his nativity scene isn't written out in his Gospel It's actually written out in Revelation chapter 12 that as the Holy Spirit is inspiring John to write about what has happened and what is to come, he kind of uncovers his eyes to see that, you know, what we celebrate at Christmas, that there is something much bigger going on. It reveals that Jesus wasn't born on some peaceful night. He was actually born into a battle scene, into a war. And friends, this is big. I want to read to you Revelation 12, beginning in verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain. And as she was about to give birth, then another sign appeared in heaven an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Years ago, I was turned on to a book by Max Lucado called A Cosmic Christmas. It's the final chapter from his book, An Angel's Story. And Max writes, Christmas is full of cozy thoughts. A sleeping Jesus, wide-eyed shepherds, a soft-faced Mary. The nativity sentiment is warm. The emotion is joy. The feeling is peace. Uh, This is the picture found in Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel. But in John's book of Revelation, however, he offers another perspective. From his perspective, the birth of Jesus stirs more than excitement. It stirs evil. 
Pulling back the curtain of the skies, he reveals a bloody war in the heavens. John sees a woman ready to give birth. He sees a dragon ready to bring death. The woman is beautiful, and the dragon, ugly. The dragon lunges at the newborn child, but he is too late. The child and the mother are granted safety, and then there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon and his angels. A war in heaven, Max writes. I've wondered about that war, when it occurred, who it involved, what it meant. And he says, actually, this is me writing about what Max said. Parts of cosmic Christmas are fiction, fruits of his imagination. He says, but other parts of the story, however, are true. Whether, you, whether or not you like the fiction, he said, it's insignificant. But whether or not you see the truth is essential. See, Scripture doesn't say really anything about the fruits of Max's imagination, but it does say this. Scripture is very clear that our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, powers of this world's darkness and against the spiritual powers of evil in the heavenly realms, Ephesians 6.12. The Bible doesn't refer to angels trapped in nets or Satan's sweet-talking Gabriel as in Max's story. The Bible is very clear, though, that Satan is real and his life purpose is to be like God most high. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. And God's creation is divided into two camps, those who follow God and those who follow Satan. Satan is the energizing power of the unsaved, Ephesians 2, 2, and God is the energizing power of the saved, Philippians chapter 2, verse 15. The saved are to live aware of, but not afraid of Satan. The devil prowls around like a thief in the night, looking for something, someone to devour, Peter says in 1 Peter 5.8. But the believer does not need to live in horror because, as John says in his little letter, 1 John 4.4, 4, greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. We must put on the armor of God to fight against the devil's tactics, Ephesians 6.11. And remember that Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light, 2 Corinthians 11.13. Our weapons against Satan are the same as those used by Gabriel and his angelic army. Prayer, praise, truth, and trust. We don't rely on our own strength, but on God's. Ephesians 6, 14 through 18 says, So stand strong with the belt of truth tied around your waist and the protection of right living on your chest. On your feet, wear the good news of peace to help you stay strong. Side note, that comes from a verse out of the Old Testament that talks about people putting on their shoes and going out to the mountains to share the good news. Go, tell it on the mountain over the hills, and everywhere. And also use the shield of faith with which you can stop all the burning arrows of the evil one. Accept God's salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit at all times. The Bible tells no story of a throne room encounter where Lucifer is offered a second chance. But the Bible does contain page after page showing God giving grace to the scallywags and turncoats of the world, as Max calls them. 
It seems more willing to give grace than we are to seek it. Such divine love leads me to wonder one thing more. If the old snake himself sought mercy, wouldn't he too find it where millions have at the foot of the cross of Christ? John's description of the war in the heavens doesn't answer all of our questions, but it does answer the most important. It tells us who won. God did. And it also tells us who matters. You do. Imagine, if God will fight such a fight to save you, he must really think you are worth the battle. And though we may wonder about the war that was conducted, there's no need to wonder about his love and about him really caring for each and every one of us. Christmas is just simply a celebration of God's divine conspiracy, to borrow the words of a favorite author. He came to win over his creation, but not by brute force, but by the birth of a baby. And you remember all those prophecies that talk about this kingdom taking over all nationalities. It was not to come. It was never, ever to come by brute force, but by humility as people served in those nations and even traveled to those nations, not just to share the message of Jesus, but more importantly, to show the message of Jesus. So that one by one by one, every single one of those people in those nations and nationalities and every single one of those nationalities would be won by Jesus, but by him coming as a baby, by him coming as a humble servant, him coming as Isaiah prophesied, as one who would be beaten and stricken and killed for our sins. Well, I've talked about the fact that this one main thought about turning our backs on God or bowing our knees to God is lived out from the beginning throughout recorded history, but it's also something that plays out in the end as Paul says in Philippians 2, just by way of reminder, verses 9 through 11, God exalted him, Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And this morning, my encouragement, my challenge to each and every one of us is that we would ask ourselves that question. Are you fighting against him or bowing before him? Are there ways in which you've been turning your backs on him as opposed to bowing the knee, surrendering what he wants to do in your life, or do you keep fighting on some level? Do you surrender any part of your day, finding out what your king needs for you to do in that day? And maybe you know what he wants you to do, but you keep fighting against it. My encouragement to you would be to see King Jesus as someone that you need to live your life for. That whatever ways you might be turning your back, you might actually bow your knee. Because whether willingly or unwillingly, Paul brings out in Philippians 2, in the end, your knee will bend. In the end, we will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In the end, we will bow before him. And it will either happen willingly or unwillingly. 
Let's pray. Father, I pray that uh, in, the, in the ways in which I have turned my back on you, I pray that you would give me the power, give me the want to, to turn, my, turn back to you. I pray, Father God, that you would empower all of us with a willingness to surrender ourselves, ultimately to surrender our lives to you if we've never done that before. Or maybe for some of us, we had a relationship with you and need to surrender to you once again because we need to renew that relationship. But I pray for all of my brothers and sisters here, Father God, who struggle in the different ways in which we need to submit ourselves to you. I pray that you would see how wonderful it is to live a life lived for you. And I pray, Father God, that you would give us the strength to be able to do that. We love you. We surrender to you. We bow before you. Amen.